that, that line, your goodness is running after me, it reminds me of, you know, in Psalm 23 where it says, your goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. I sometimes think when we step into glory, awake in the kingdom of God, we'll think to ourselves, how in the heck did we end up here? And we'll be reminded, oh yeah, goodness and mercy followed me all the days of my life. Because we're going to need it given the path that we're going to leave behind us. Amen. Please be seated as we pray together. Father, we give you thanks this morning that despite the trail we have left in our past that has led us to this moment, that it is covered with goodness and mercy. And that your mercy is more powerful than our sin. Your righteousness is more powerful than our unrighteousness. And indeed, your life is more powerful than our death. Would you allow that truth to transform us, to transform our hearts and our actions both today in the name of Jesus? Amen. Uh, just before we get started, two notes. Uh, one, um, thank you, Ben, for for clarifying that I am still a young adult. That's the first thing I want to just recognize. Also, I'm sorry, I forgot to introduce by name your family, Lauren. So that was Linda, Joe, Keith, and Brandon, right? So Linda, Joe, and Keith are grandma and grandpa and Brandon's brother. So I'm really sorry. Give him a hand, yeah, for showing up. All right. <laughs> so recently I, uh, I finished, I, I read a biography to my kids. I've uh, been reading the missionary biographies Lately, and they're kind of written for for kids. They're tailored to to kids. And this one was about David Livingston, a missionary explorer to Africa. And if you know anything about his life and his journeys, you know it's not really full of happy endings. Um, first of all, I'm not really sure he qualifies as a missionary so much as he does an explorer, since he spent a lot of his life having a bunch of kids that he didn't really raise and a wife that he didn't really pay much attention to, not to de denigrate his reputation, but it's just a fact of the matter. Uh, but toward the end of the life, uh, his life, his, uh, his wife ended up leaving their children in Scotland and coming to be with him because she wanted to be with her husband, and, uh, and, then, and then she dies a few months later. And then his son comes to look for him. His son turns 18 and comes looking for him in South Africa, but by this time he was in West Africa. And when he looks for him after about a month, he realizes he's not going to find him. And he sails to the United States to be a soldier in the Union Army to fight against slavery. And he dies as a prisoner of war. And this is pretty much how the book ended. And literally when it was, you know, last line, the end, my daughter Radley burst out crying. It said, I hate this book. <laughs> and she said, explaining herself, everybody just dies, you know. And, uh, and so I began to process with them a little bit. And, and, I, and I said to them at one point, I said, you know, in, in the end, it, all of our stories end like this. It's not whether we die, it's, it's how we die. And it doesn't make it any less tragic or anything. But, and then one of them interrupted and said, yeah, but usually it's the bad guys who die in the story. <laughs> and so my question to them 
And my question to you this morning is, is it any less tragic when a bad guy dies? And that's similar to the question I think Jesus confronts us with today in, in the text. Where do you draw the line, though, between the good guys and the bad guys? Where do you draw the line between good and evil? We all draw that line, don't we? Where do you draw it? So turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We're going to read a story about a bad guy, often called the good Samaritan. Now this is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, and for that very reason, as it happens with the familiar stories of the Bible, it's one of the most misunderstood. It's, as I said, uh, often referred to as the Good Samaritan. And um, the evidence of this being a misunderstood story is the fact that we call it the story of the Good Samaritan. We even use this term kind of idiomatically in our culture to, to describe things that are, are, are good, our humanitarian efforts. There's Good Samaritan hospitals and Good Samaritan laws even, which is doubly ironic if you know anything about the Samaritans. But, but for the person Jesus is telling this parable to, the phrase Good Samaritan is itself an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp. Okay, it's like plastic silverware. You could even think of it as, as this is saying, this is the good bad guy. That's what you can think of this sermon. So let's call this sermon either the bad Samaritan or better yet, the good bad guy. Because that's what it's really about, the good bad guy. And, and by doing that, it's going to enable us to relate to the story in the way Jesus intends for us to relate to it and to understand it. And all we have to do is ask ourselves, who are the bad guys to us? Now, that's going to be different to each person in here. And it could be personal. It could be political. It's probably political, isn't it? Okay? They're either somewhere on the right or somewhere on the left. Just situate that person in your heart and allow that to inform the way you hear this text, beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, it says this, and behold, a lawyer, so this is not just a lawyer as we think of lawyers, but an expert in God's law. This is a Jewish lawyer, well-versed in the law of God. And so this is a religious category as much as it is anything else. So a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this sets the stage for everything that follows. The, the lawyer comes to Jesus with a question. And, and, and this is the question that represents the Really the fundamental question behind all religious questions, doesn't it? If there is a God, how do we inherit eternal life? It's the number one question everybody wants answered. If it's possible to have eternal life, what do I got to do to get it, right? And he's asking it then, and not just for himself, but perhaps on our behalf he's asking this question, it's the one we're most interested in knowing the answer to. And as such, it entices us all to lean forward a little bit and to listen to what Jesus has to say. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? Lawyer, right? 
what is, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? Not just what's written, but how do you read it? Now, first of all, we know we're in trouble, okay? Because anytime Jesus asks a question, he's getting ready to make a point. Jesus literally asked hundreds of questions throughout the Gospels, and there's not a single question he asked because he was looking for information from anyone else. He always asked questions because he was preparing to give us an answer to a question that nobody cared to ask. Oftentimes reframing questions that we come to him with, which is what this lawyer has done. And now Jesus is reframing it. You've all heard it said, there's no stupid questions. Jesus objects to that notion. Okay? And so, and so this is what he does. And what he does whenever he's asking, when, it, when Jesus asks a question, he's getting ready to reframe and even redefine reality as we know it. Like when he asks, for example, who are my mother and brother and sister? And when his, remember when his family went looking for him because they thought he was going crazy and saying all these things he shouldn't be saying in the temple and about the religion or the, the, the religious leaders. It's, he didn't ask that question because he had forgotten who Mary and Joseph and his brother John. He didn't forget about them. He wasn't asking it literally. What he was doing was preparing to redefine their understanding of family as they knew it. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, these are my brother and sister and mother and so on. That's who. He was redefining family. Now, I, I could go through Example after example, showing you how every question follows this pattern. But Sam spoiled you last week with a 30-minute sermon, so I'm going to show some restraint. Okay? <laughs> and he threw me under the bus a little bit, too, but I'm not holding any grudges. Bad guys, right? No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> oh, now, come on. <laughs> okay, so... So, Jesus, so in this case, what the, the subject matter that Jesus is going to lead us to is, you could probably guess it, it's love, it's, which is so annoying, isn't it? It's, it just always comes back to love. I know, but here we are. All right, verse 27 and 28. Jesus answered, uh, oh, sorry, the, the, the lawyer answered. Uh, so remember, what, what, is it, what is written in the law, and then how do you read it? The lawyer answers the first question, what's written? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So, so the lawyer answered the first question Jesus asked and he answered it as an expert. He, this is advanced exegesis class because he, he answered it in exactly the way Jesus answered it when he was asked a similar question. What's the greatest commandment? Remember when someone asked Jesus that and Jesus said, oh, I'll tell you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And they said under their breath, I suppose, well, we didn't ask you the first two. We just asked you one. You can't separate the one from the other. If you don't truly love your neighbor, you don't truly love your God. And the, the lawyer picked up on this. He knew this. 
He got it right. It is love God and love neighbor. But this leads to the second question. Who's my neighbor? (laughs) Which is another way of saying, who do I have to love? Which is another way of saying, who do I not have to love? Is it not? Okay. This is why Jesus not asks what's written, but how do you read it? And we're getting ready to see how he reads it. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. How does he read it? Not like any of us. Right? None of us would go to God's word seeking to justify ourselves. Right? Okay, good. Just making sure. So, he's seeking to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, a model religious figure, person everybody puts on a platform, everyone looks up to. A priest was going down from that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levi, from which come the priests, by the way, when he came to this place, he saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay When you come back, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of God. So this parable was given, the parable, okay, the the story that Jesus just constructed out of thin air was given to this lawyer uh, in response to his question, who is my neighbor? Which, as we noted, really ultimately comes down to where can I draw the limits of my love? Who do I, ha- who do I not have to love? But Jesus turns the question on his head. He, 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 he does it by not telling him to, like he has said elsewhere, love your enemy or lo- even love the bad guy. It's even worse than that. He says, learn from the enemy. Learn from the bad guy. Another thing, uh, uh, in in other words, you have to, here I'm going to construct this story of the bad guy doing what I want you to do, and then you have to follow his example. It's one thing to love the bad guy, another thing to look up to him, right? That takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? Especially for lawyers. This lawyer, not lawyers in general, you see. Seriously, if I ever get in trouble, I'm not trying to fit any lawyers in here. I'm not talking, okay. So to get a a sense of how offensive this would be to this particular lawyer's sensibilities, I want to just read you some quotes from Jewish literature about bad guys, 
from this time in, in history. And it shows that how clean the line was between the good and the bad. Okay, the good guys and the bad guys, the good and the evil, and how the world was just, it was just divided in black and white terms. Our culture knows nothing about this, right? <laughs> There's no polarities in our culture like that. But let me just show you what this world was like and see if, if we can try to identify of this world of Jew versus Gentile, sinner versus saint, liberal versus, cons- never mind, that wasn't the, uh, okay, sinner versus saint, and then chief among the sinners the Samaritans. But let me just start with sinners. Give alms to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Where's the limits of love? That's just the devout, right? Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. You don't have to love them. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them, for the Most High also hates sinners. Well, you notice how they threw in the also? That feeling you feel against sinners, the ones you identify as sinners, so the Most High also, right? Because God's like us, isn't he? No, he's not, is the answer to that. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. And here, I mean, this is just the natural extension of the fall. This is what happens when human beings choose to be the ones who determine what is good and what is evil in this world. They quickly translate that into who is good and who is evil in this world, don't they? Don't we? Okay. Place your bread on the grave of the righteous, but give none to sinners. In other words, if you want to give something, it's better to give to a dead righteous guy than to a living sinner. Right? That's what it's saying. Just don't go to the sinner. Don't go to, don't let your love extend beyond that. You have a moral obligation to put limits on your love, in essence. And here, of those sinners, this is kind of the Jewish mentality of the time. And this is all, by the way, in the, the Apocrypha, the intertestamental books. Not in the, the Bible, but they, they were once included in the Jewish canon and even the, the Roman Catholic canon. But it says this, Two nations my soul detests, and the third is not even a people. Those who live in Seir and the Philistines. And so who's the one that are not even a people? In other words, subhuman. Like the way Nazis saw Jews, Right? the fools that live in Samaria, you see? And then uh, my favorite, actually one of my favorite passages in the Gospels, just because it's so funny and revealing, because it's really about us, isn't it? But it's about Jesus' disciples, which is about us. This is just a few verses earlier in in chapter 9, and they're going through this village of the Samaritans, to make pre- now, this is not incidental to this passage. This passage will probably be familiar to some, some of you. But the key to understanding the passage, and then the passage that follows, which is the, good, the so-called Good Samaritan, is where they're going when this thing happens that you're about to hear about. They're going through this village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Jesus, but the people did not receive him there because he had set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, one thing you need to know about why the Samaritans were so hated by the Jews is Samaritans were kind of seen as half-breed, mixed Jewish people. And they, they worshipped the same God, but it was more of a, like a geopolitical division. Okay? It was, they worshipped in a different temple. It's like the woman at the well. We worship, at, you worship in Jerusalem, but our, temp, our people worship on this mountain over here. Okay? It was kind of like 
It was kind of like the, M- M- the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv versus the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. That kind of division, if you know what I'm talking about. Okay? It was, and by saying it's political, it's, it's a political division, and it turns out that politics seems to be what people care about most in this world, more than their religion. The religion often gets decorated, or their politics often get decorated in religion as a facade, but what do people really care about is power, and that's what politics is about. And so they, hey, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, so no wonder the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with this Messiah, because he didn't come for them. He came for the people who worship in Jerusalem, you see. And so when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, I mean, these are guys who have already heard the Sermon on the Mount, the love your enemy, and that sort of thing. But they, unlike us, have a thick head. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? (laughs) And Jesus, oops. Oh, no, where are we here? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then they went on to another village. Isn't that a great story? I feel like I don't need to comment on it just because the, the humor is. You can't point out the humor. It's not funny anymore, okay? All right, so, so, con- so uh, consider then what even Jesus himself says. Oh, okay, sorry. So the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus answers in effect by saying, it's, it, it, it's not, he didn't draw a line anywhere. Do you notice what he did? He, he, he grabbed someone from across the line in his disciples' way of dividing the world between good and evil, and he made him the exemplar of what love looks like. He wants to know, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is telling him, what is love? He's not answering the question he asks. And he does so by, by simply asking this question by, at the end of the peril. Well, who's the one who was willing to become a neighbor to the man in the ditch? That's what he said. And the, this guy is probably thinking, well, that's not the question I asked, Jesus. So, well, it's the question I'm giving you. It's the only answer that can align itself with the truth I'm trying to communicate, which is what love truly looks like. Love looks like becoming a neighbor to whoever needs a neighbor. It looks like drawing near to those you are otherwise separated from across some dividing line, ep- economic, religious, moral, or otherwise. It look, love looks like Jesus himself, who crossed the greatest boundary of all, from heaven to earth, from holy God to sinful humanity, and, and drew near to us in his mercy as all of those who are left for dead in the ditch of this fallen world, right? It's not a matter of if we die, it's how. And he came into death, into the ditch of death to be with us as as those left for dead. Hence, to love your neighbor is to become a neighbor to those who need one. That's what it means. And and that is to become a neighbor, neighbor to whomever happens to need one, whoever happens to need one, okay? And that's why, uh, hence the, the, the title of the sermon, Won't You Be Their Neighbor? I, this, uh, this comes from Mr. Rogers, and I was gonna, I, I figured there had to be some illustration, so I rented the new Mr. Rogers movie with Tom Hanks, and, and I, I turned it on, and I fell asleep, 
almost immediately. And then the, I had like three days to watch it on Amazon Prime. Second day, I turned it on and fell asleep. Third day, same thing. So I don't have anything insightful to say. <laughs> Other than maybe don't watch that movie because it's super boring. Okay. So, but what are, the, what are the implications for us as followers of Jesus from this, from this parable, from this text? I would say this. I see four at least, in this text. Number one, followers of Jesus are those who know they are the good guys uh, and girls. Equal opportunity here, okay? They know that they're the good guys and the good girls. Uh, Oh, gosh. See, Freudian slip. You see my, I'm trying to justify myself. You see what I'm doing? It's our impulse to... (laughs) <laughs> but, cons- okay, we know we're the bad guys and girls, right? Bad guys. Uh, consider what Jesus himself says of, to his own disciples. We resist this way of thinking. If you then, being evil, he said that to his disciples. That's harsh, isn't it? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much father... How much more will your heavenly Father give to the Holy Spirit who asks of him? Who asks him? You see what he's done? He's saying, look, it, it, it's not like he's wanting us to feel bad about ourselves. He's wanting us to stop, th- stop thinking badly about other people. Stop calling other people evil. You're in the same boat as they are, and yet... Your Father in heaven still loves you and provides for you. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, as Jesus says. You see, he's saying stop drawing these lines between good and evil. He's revealing what anyone with some honest introspection will eventually discover. And if, you don't, if you're not willing to have honest introspection, all you have to do is listen to Jesus, who introspects for us. I guess that would be more like outrospects. I don't know what it would be. But he reveals it if you can't find it in yourself. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn described, reflecting on his time in a Soviet prison, looking for the line of good and evil outside of himself, which would have been very easy to draw for him as someone who was subject to some of the worst tyranny this world has ever seen. He wrote this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either, but cuts straight through, the, through every human heart, right? You want to know where the line between good and evil is? Look inside yourself. That's where you'll find it. We know that that we're the bad guys, but that's not saying it's over against some other group who's the good guys. It's simply recognizing God's judgment in a fallen world, that there are none who are good, truly good, I mean, you can be good if your standards are low enough. Yeah, you can be good. But if your standard is Jesus Christ himself, holy God of gods who became human to die for the people who killed him, that's the standard. None reached it. We all fall short of that standard. That's the glory of God revealed on earth. 
And that's why Paul and Isaiah, even looking ahead, say, all fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Paul said, uh, Isaiah said, he sees our righteousness, and it's like filthy rags compared to that standard. And so, and so we have to recognize that Jesus himself is a standard. As Paul says of him in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And this leads to the second, the second implication from this text, namely that followers of Jesus are those who know they have received mercy. Like I said, it's not that being bad guys means, it's not that being bad guys means you're not worthy of love. You might not be deserving of love all the time, or most of the time, or any of the time for that matter, at least not from God. That doesn't mean you're not worthy of love. Doesn't mean you don't have infinite dignity. Doesn't mean God doesn't see you as his beloved and that you're beautiful in his sight. And despite what you've added to your life, the baggage you've added and the trail in your past that, you've, that has led you here, as we have already talked about, it doesn't mean that you're not always, you are always worthy of receiving love and you know it because God is always giving it to you. He never stops loving you. There is no shadow of turning in him. He's not like us, okay? He's not like us. He always loves. He's not reactive. He's proactive. He does whatever he wants, and he wants to love you because of him, not because of you. He gets to decide what you're worth. What are you worth? He gave his son as a ransom. That's what he says you're worth. And that's scandalous because he's saying you're worth as much as his own son to us. That would be blasphemy if, if God's word didn't say it. Right? You are worth infinite amount to God. But you don't deserve any of it. It's all mercy. Right? Can you see you are living under the reign of God's mercy, under the waterfall of God's mercy, under the flood of God's mercy, as John 1 says, that, that when the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw the glory of the only begotten son full of grace and truth and that he has given us grace upon grace. There are waves of grace flooding this world trying to get to you. You are love worthy, but it's all mercy. It's all in the form of mercy. If the cross of Christ doesn't prove that, nothing will. Nothing will. So, so this redefines love for the lawyer around this central concept of mercy. And, and it was through the mercy of the Samaritan who proved it. Verse 37, remember, he asked, who proved to be the, the neighbor to the guy in the ditch? The one who showed mercy. Yes, now go and do likewise, as Jesus has already taught his disciples by this point. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. And that leads to the third implication for us. Followers of Jesus are those who do not seek to justify themselves. Right? That's, in this text, the lawyer's motives were revealed behind each Question. First, the motive was to test Jesus, right? That's what it says in uh, verse 25, that he, he stood and put to him a test, saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then the second was to justify himself. 
Love your neighbor, love God and your neighbor, and you shall live. But the lawyer seeking to justify himself asked the second question. And like I said, this is just, this isn't something we would do, right? Right? Okay, I think you'd see where I'm going. For example, for example, by reading texts about, say, homosexuality, and then feeling justified about ourselves. By neglecting willfully the numerous myriad texts about lust and divorce and greed and anger and coveting your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's life and any other number of texts that would not leave us feeling so justified, would they? Right? They would, they would leave us feeling unjust, unrighteous, and in desperate need for grace. Right? That's what the law was intended to do. Yes, to be instruction for how to live. This is not an anti-law statement or sermon or otherwise. We, it is grace that God tells us how we should live. But it also reveals as a mirror that this is a standard we just can't live up to perfectly in our lives. But the reason we don't, this, listen, the reason we don't have to seek to justify ourselves in God's word is because God's word see, reveals how we are justified despite our inability to justify ourselves. As Paul said himself in recognizing the divide of his day, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. However, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, right? We don't have to justify ourselves because Jesus Christ has justified us. He has made us righteous. He has made us one with God. He has, be, he has become for us the righteousness that we couldn't become for God. And only then we start at the finish line and then begins the transformation for the rest of our life in response to his grace and following his example and maybe the example of a few bad guys along the way. Which leads to the last observation. Followers of Jesus are those who are willing to learn from other bad guys and girls. Now, I'm going to end with just two examples of this. One from a far-right conservative fundamentalist to offend the sensibilities of some, and the other from a flaming liberal to offend the sensibilities of others. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm offended by this too, okay? We're all in the same boat. But uh, a few months ago, you would have, if you were here, you may have met my Uncle Eddie, and I've talked a lot about him because he was a kind of second father to me and took me in. He became a neighbor to me, okay? He let me live with him when I got kicked out of school and, and moved across the state, and they took me in and became good Samaritans, uh, however bad they may be. Um, sorry, Gay and Eddie, if you're watching. But that's my aunt and uncle. Now, I want to read you a letter. Okay, now, here's the thing about Eddie, and this is going to offend some of you, not others of you, but my Uncle Eddie is like a diehard Trump supporter. He voted for Trump, and he probably will again if he becomes the nominee. But let me just read you. I want to read you an excerpt of a letter, and then I'm going to tell you what the letter is all about, and then it all makes sense to you, okay? Okay, and this is a letter advocating for someone. It says this. Through the years, Louise has exhibited dependability, 
When one is not required to punch a time clock, it's easy to let things. It, my uncle owns a pallet business, and he has workers for him who keep track of their own time. He doesn't check their time clocks. It's, it's what I did all through high school. He taught me how to work, and he has hired endless people, uh, godless heathens like me, to, uh, to work for him. And so it's an honor system. When one's not required to punch a clock, it's easy to let other things get in the way of working a job where there's no consequences for absence. Luis is not that kind of worker. He keeps his word. When he's scheduled to work, he shows up on time. Again, this speaks of character that is part of who this man is and his standard he holds for himself. For all the ways Luis has proven to be a responsible and valuable worker, I have come to value his friendship most. Over the years, it's been a privilege for my wife and myself to watch his family increase, and his wife, Sheila, uh, to have welcomed another son and daughter into their home. Luis is a wonderful husband and father who loves his family and longs to provide for them in the best way possible. The caliber of man he is already and is making a, is making a visible impact on his children. They are well-mannered and polite, which speaks of the training they receive at home. And even though they're young, he is teaching them the value of work. Tony, his eight-year-old son, sometimes accompanies him on Saturdays to help work. And it is a joy to watch Luis train his little boy to be a great man one day. I count it an honor to speak any word on behalf of this man who is more than a friend. He is family. America can only benefit from claiming men like Luis Telez as one of her own. He and his descendants will be an asset to this country. If you have any further questions, I can provide any additional information. Please do not hesitate to call. This is a letter written to, I believe, the Depart a representative in the Department of Immigration on behalf of Luis Enrique Hernandez Telez, an illegal immigrant who had been here for 20 years, and after working, begin to work for my uncle, he expressed his desire to become a citizen. And my far-right uncle, Trump supporter, advocated for him, put up money for him, had to go back to Mexico and do his due diligence over there to come back and get naturalized and become now a citizen of the U.S., and this is gay and and Eddie, and that's Louise, and that's his son, Tony. And he has five more kids now, by the way. You can learn from the example of that bad guy, can't you? My uncle. You better not call him bad to my face, all right? <laughs> now, and this last example from the flaming liver, I don't really mean that. This just happened last night, and it's embarrassing, frankly. It's not really embarrassing, but you'll understand. So Keswick, my oldest son, asked if he could stay the night with, uh, with one of his friends. And Keldy said to him the same thing. I, you know, he kind of played us again. He first asked mom, then came and asked dad, because I'm a pushover. But I have, I draw a line somewhere, okay? And, and we actually love this family a lot, but they just don't have the same faith or values that we do. And they, they allow, you know, they allow like watching horror movies and that sort of thing. And we're just not ready for that. We're just not ready for that. Uh, but, but we let him hang out with this friend all day. And so when he asked mom, she said the same thing I did. Well, they don't really have the same values as us. We're worried about screens and all of that. It's legitimate. I stand by my decision. But, but he went 
they went out and they, they went to quarters and did some arcade. And, and then they went to Taco Bell and they had the dinner. And Keswick came home and he told me about his day. And he told me about going to the arcade for like maybe 30 seconds. But then he said, do you know what else happened, Daddy? He said, we went to Taco Bell and there was a man who was homeless there. And this dad stopped and he asked this man, is there anything we can do for you? And then we took this man to Goodwill and we got him sleeping bag, we got him clothes, we got him shoes, we got him all this stuff. And he was so happy. He was so happy, Daddy. And I said to Keswick, well, you know, this, this dad does have some of the values we have, okay? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's not that I think this guy's a bad guy any more than I think I'm a bad guy. But I got to tell you, I was humbled. And it's not that I think you have to stop every time you see someone on the, you can't, I mean, literally just stop every day on the way home. But sometimes you're probably called to stop. And you got to listen to the Holy Spirit. And you got to give that example to your kids. Or the bad guys are going to be left to do it for you, you know? And we can learn lessons from the far right and the far left if we stop seeing them across those lines of good and evil. That, that line runs straight to the heart of each of us. So just leave you with these words from Thomas Merton. Instead of hating the people you think are war makers, hate the appetites and disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war, ultimately. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself, not in another. Let's pray together. Father, let us live with your conviction. <laughs> a conviction that alone will lead us to love a world who desperately needs your love. A love greater than any of us can offer. Help us to see person above policy. Help us not to be cloistered in our own self-righteous, self-justifying categories. And let us be those who follow the example of Jesus and descend into this world of sinners as one among sinners. As your word says of Jesus, he was counted among sinners, a lamb before the slaughter. Let us be, let us be humble like that without thinking we're holy like that because we're not. Humble us, Lord, and show us how to love. Show us what love truly is. Show us the boundlessness, the limitlessness of love that can actually propel us to all the world, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all political parties who desperately need to hear about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you go this week, I would just put this blessing on you and charge, encouragement, and send you with this. To go and be like the bad Samaritan. Do good to all indiscriminately, knowing there's only two options. It's not between good and evil. It's between speaking in the voice of Satan, which means accuser, or the voice of Jesus, who is our advocate. Go and advocate for the world. Stop accusing it. We'll all stop together. We have better news to share. We have something more important to say. Go, you bad Samaritans. Amen? Amen. Amen.